Welcome, everyone. Wow. Uh, what a wonderful premiere last night. Um, I know I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, thank you for listening and tuning in. Um, before we get into And Just Like That, I would like to recap the top five most important moments leading up to this premiere from the original Sex and the City. Uh, these moments will be broken down from different episodes. So, um, I'll also mention those so you can go back and rewatch and get, you know, ready for episode two. Um, I know we're all excited. So, I think, now I'll be going in reverse order, but my number five most important moment of Sex and the City happened in season two, episode two. It's kind of early on, but we start to get a feel for the characters, you know. Um, Carrie gets drawn into her friend Susan Sharon's clearly abusive relationship. She's getting way too drawn into this. Um, even writing about it, mentioning it in her column. Miranda dates a dirty talker, which is just, you know, peak Miranda, right? Charlotte gets a dog, which is just out of control. But, you know, of course, later in the season, we find that she's lovingly adopted the dog and everything like that. So it turns out fine. But we start to get a feel for everybody. Now, I'm not mentioning Samantha because she doesn't exist in this new world. Uh, number four, we've got the cast system, which was another season two, uh, episode 10. Now, if I remember correctly, Charlotte joined the entourage of the movie star Willie Ford, which was really a weird turn, but we get to dive deeper into Charlotte as a character and see how she's dealing with things like that, you know, how she's really, really focusing in on developing her own personality, right? Now, episode three, we have to, of course, mention this. Uh, the Monogamists, season one, episode seven, we all remember it, right? But we get some important character development. Uh, Mr. Big makes his appearance. Um, as, as, a, as a, a villain, you know? And um, if you saw the premiere last night, you know very well, as I do, he's not a good guy. Uh, so that one's, you know spoilers of course um if you haven't seen this show but come on it was out 20 years ago uh number two coming in hot at number two it was a it was a tie nearly between this and number one but boy girl boy girl season three episode four um they all sort of mesh finally you know we get the feel of all of them um they're 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 exploring their friendship and coming together. This was really the major arcing episode of season three and a callback in uh, season six, episode 18, I believe. Now, uh, my number one episode that you need to watch before the premiere is No Ifs, Ands, or Buts, spelled with two Ts. Pretty funny. This is season three, episode five. Again, this is why it was so closely tied with episode four. But this is the one where Carrie meets Aiden. And Aiden, again, as, as we see and in and just like that, uh, I'm going to be making that mistake this whole episode. Aiden is a pivotal character. He's a good guy, right? Why would she not stick around with him? Uh, you know, we'll have to just continue watching this HBO Max season to... Uh, find out. So uh, stay tuned. 
uh, after a word from our sponsors, and uh, we'll get into and just like that. Quest never ending to find the beginning that came before everything. Like kids with decoders discover the wonder in the Without further ado, this is my solo episode. Um, I don't know how well it's going to go, and um, I wanted to start off, though, by saying thank you to everyone that sent in questions. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, uh, the questions were a little slow at first, so I gave huge answers to those. And then, um, as I guess everyone in our listenership resembles me personally, uh, they sent a lot in at the last minute that were um, high quality. So uh, that's kind of sounds like a brag, but it uh, wasn't meant to be. So hopefully I can get to everything um, in a a concise but entertaining manner. Um, maybe this will fall flat, but who knows. Um, it is 9.30 a.m., so I am not inebriated, um, but I do have my drinks next to me uh, in case we need some bailing out. So, uh, let's see. I think I'll start off with uh, the first person to send in questions. Uh, so, thank you very much, Flappa Mama Jamma. And I'm going to take a strong guess that your name is Scott. Um, so, let's see. First question. How, uh, tell us the story about how you and Josh fell in love. Um, so... I don't know if we've recapped this. Uh, I mentioned it definitely on our birthday episode in March, uh, in the song specifically. But uh, Josh and I, one, we've we've never met in person. Um, we only FaceTime every time that we talk. Um, I live in Southern California. Josh lives in the wasteland of Dallas, Texas. Uh, and... When we first started speaking, uh, Josh thought I still lived in Japan. Um, so uh, that we, you know, almost did a uh, recording at a ridiculous time. Um, but the story kind of goes, I don't know, a little far back. This was a few years ago. Let's see. When did this go up? Um, it really all started with Terrence Howard. Now, if you recall, um, Terrence Howard is the, what show is he on? Uh, Empire? I should have known this, shouldn't I? Uh, so Terrence Howard, the actor, was at the Emmy red carpet, and he was interviewed by the local KTLA uh, crew. And that's when he gave that really insane spiel about uncovering the flower of life and how he's found these wave conjugations and how there's no straight lines and um 
I don't know. He was, it, it sounded pretty wacky. Um, and they broke it down on IJB, uh, you know, talking about the audio and everything like that. Well, the thing is, uh, Terrence Howard, I don't think understands on a, a well-established scientific <laughs> understanding of what he's talking about, but, uh, he does like mention some buzzwords that were, I don't know, true. Um, now he's, he's referring to like the platonic solids as if that's something that's still scientifically relevant. Um, but you know, uh, I'm not Plato. Um, so I am fascinated with more interesting things than a cube. Um, but Hey, that guy's supposedly smart. Uh, but the, the points that he really hit on were like how every, how, what does he say? It's something like energy is expressed in uh, motion and every motion is waves and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and waves are like a big part of his spiel. And essentially what he's trying to say is no straight lines exist. It is only the intersection of waves that give us some perceived straight lines in the world. And that's why his understanding is more correct. Um, again, straight lines, uh, we've all taken science classes, right? Straight lines never come up as anything important. Um, so it's, it's kind of silly to hinge your entire argument on that. But the thing about waves that is interesting, and we've mentioned this before in like the quantum mechanics episodes, um, like the wave particle duality of things that uh, in experiments you shoot an electron cannon and um, if you shoot it straight at a film, then it it appears to show up like it's um, like it was a particle being shot at it, like one individual kind of thing. But if you took put a metal plate in front of it that has two slits in it, then each particle you shoot seems to act like a wave had gone through there and it's sort of after it hits the plate and goes through the slits it starts to show up on the film as if it were a wave it's got like a a different band pattern to it and this pattern seems to indicate that each particle that goes through there is actually acting like a wave and whenever one particle goes through it is somehow sort of like splitting uh or the different instances of it uh the different like um what's the word see this is why i need josh the superpositions are interacting with each other and causing it to sort of refract out like a wave would um so energy interaction is kind of a big deal right uh, so as we circle back to matter as a whole, all matter interacts with other matter in a form of energy transfer. Um, so like the color of something is due to the energy wavelength that it's giving off. Like the, uh, a photon hits a leaf and because of the chlorophyll in there, all of the other, uh, spectrums of energy are absorbed, but the electrons inside of the chlorophyll go up. A level and then when they drop back down to their resting state level uh, because there's different levels of electrons it gives off a green color and that relates to string theory 
in a way that there's these theories that, um, again, we've mentioned this, but this is just a very brief overview, that there's these vibrating strings that make up these different dimensions, and through those vibrations, whenever those interact with each other, that's when something like uh, proton, or, you know, more like the subatomic particles, but the things that make up a proton are formed, or the the forces that make up gravity are formed. So while there's like a little bit of truth to what he's saying, um, the the IJB boys were breaking it down and sort of laughing at all of it. So I figured, why not send an email? And I wrote all of this out and sent it over to him. And the next episode, uh, they mentioned that, of course, uh, they would get emails from Eric and Josh. And so then I knew I had a kindred, kindred spirit, right? But uh, had never really spoken with Josh. Then, let's see, that was like 2019. Um, a few years go by, uh, and we start to have this thing called COVID. I don't know if you are familiar, um, but that hit in around March of 2015. Uh, COVID was kicking off, and I had a lot more free time. Um, and, you know, was like, not, a, you know, things were getting canceled from the little bit of work that I do. Uh, and so I was, um, you know, to put it lightly, losing my mind. And I figured, hey, I know like a little bit about science. Like uh, I worked in medical research. I understand what the, like say PCR tests are um, and the process for those kinds of things. So I thought, what if I just did like, uh, even if it was a one-off, maybe an episode explaining those sorts of things. Um, and so I reached out to Josh just on Twitter and pitched the idea of uh, why don't we do like an episode, maybe weekly, we could give COVID updates because we of course didn't know how long it was going to be, but everybody who was scientifically literate, <clears throat> except for uh, Fauci, who's not, um, predicted that it was going to last for quite a while. So uh, he correctly, you know, adjusted course and was saying that if we do like weekly updates, then one, it's probably going to be like not relevant by the time that anybody listens to it. Um, but two, that's going to just, you know, if there are, is no important update, then it's just going to kind of be boring to listen to. Um, especially from our two perspectives, because we don't really have, <clears throat> how do people talk for longer than 16 minutes, Jesus? <clears throat> Gotta get my coffee. So, uh, from our perspectives, we weren't going to provide, you know, real world feedback more than what everybody else was seeing in the news and does everyone want to get depressed every week? Uh, I know I sure don't. So, uh, then we started with the like COVID episode, which, um, I always thought was, uh, probably my worst one, um, until this, of course. And we sort of, you know, that was like our first time talking. We spoke on the phone for like 30 minutes before we recorded, <laughs> even just to figure out who the other person was. And, um, 
I know we recorded like 30 straight episodes, I think, before taking a week off because I didn't want it to turn into, you know, one week off and then two weeks off, then a month and then just not do the show anymore. And while we were learning how to talk with each other, I think it wasn't until the, um, I can't remember which episode it was, but it was the one before we did the book by Vitaly that is the end of policing. So it was essentially like the George Floyd protest episode. Um, that one, I think, really hit that like me and Josh, I guess, connected on those kinds of things like mentally. Um, so from there, it's just been, I don't know, uh, pretty nice to do all this stuff with Josh. Um, so he's a good guy. Um, and we miss him terribly. So rest in peace. Uh, so then, uh, Scott, your next question about the Expanse podcast. Uh, one, Justin has a real job, unlike me. Um, so the thing with a show is it's sort of a pastime of watching TV that is only something a worker can do. And uh, I am an artisan, so I'm not allowed to review TV shows despite the cold open. That and Justin has already recorded it. Um, but he's just sending it from uh, beyond the belt. So it's it's just taken a long time to get here. Uh, but that aside, uh, I do love the show, The Expanse. Um, season six, ooh, it may have actually dropped. <laughs> I should have talked about that instead of, uh, and just like that. But anyways, I think it's dropping maybe this week. But it's the final season. Um, if you haven't watched the show, uh, I think it would be interesting. It's kind of, I don't know. I wouldn't, I've never watched Game of Thrones. I don't watch much TV, but it's got an interesting premise. It has a lot of like the politics that people say they like about Game of Thrones. Um, but it's in, you know, a more real world context, uh, even though it's in the far future, because there's, the stakes that they're playing in are the same stakes that we're now watching unfold as far as like climate change and um, military advancement while tensions are not uh, decreasing, I guess you could say. Um, I don't really want to spoil anything because I, I forget. I've watched all of the episodes, uh, so I, I don't remember where the podcast is. Um, and Justin always tells me I'm spoiling things or Scott does. I can't remember. Uh, and finally, uh, from Scott, um, he was interested in my time abroad. Um, so let's see, I grew up in Texas, right? I grew up in, in Denton, um, growing up, uh, I, I did not like Texas <laughs> much, uh, even though I was like a, you know, uh, I'm certainly one of those people that is uh, not a fan of Texas, but uh, I'm allowed to say that because I'm from there. And if you're not from Texas, please don't talk bad about it. Uh, that kind of mentality, uh, which is twisted. But I always knew that I wanted to get out uh, from there. I remember like in high school, uh, my plans were like, okay, I'm either going to move to Los Angeles or like London or something, you know, nothing too crazy because, uh, I, I 
took the intelligent course of studying a dead language, Latin, in high school, and then again in college. Uh, so uh, not very useful in real-world interactions. Um, uh, or scientific interactions, for that matter. But um, that's one thing they don't tell you. Uh, so my time abroad was actually, uh, I mentioned this on, again, uh, the IJB episode. Uh, it was a big box. And I had moved to uh, Japan in my early, mid-20s, I guess. Uh, so I had met my wife, uh, Miho, when I was in college. Uh, we met while I was on uh, spring break in L.A., visiting Los Angeles, because I thought I wanted to go to medical school at UCLA, so I wanted to see Los Angeles for the first time, uh, the typical trip. And uh, met her while surfing, and uh, my wife is from Japan. Uh, she moved to the U.S. Um, by herself when she was 15. Um, her parents had won like the green card lottery and she was like, okay, well, I want to go there. Uh, so she had been studying at USC at the time and we met and, um, of course, you know, like dated long distance. And then she took an internship, um, like in, in Texas and all this kind of stuff. We, we moved to Houston. Then from her job, uh, they asked her, um, because after the, the big earthquake that happened in 2011 in Tokyo, they had shut down all of the nuclear power plants in Japan. And they needed to restart all of the gas turbine power plants so that, um, you know, the country could have power. So in 20, I'm trying to remember, I think it was maybe early 2014 or uh, mid-2014. Uh, somebody from her company asked her if she could, you know, consider moving to Japan because they needed engineers um, who could speak English and Japanese uh, and who understood the technology. And she is, uh, out of that entire company of probably 10,000 people, the one person <laughs> that could do that uh, quite well. So <clears throat> uh, she got asked to do it. And because at the time, I had been focusing on medical school. Uh, she immediately like turned it down. I was like, no, I can't do it. Um, and this was when I started explaining um, that I don't think I want to go to medical school anymore. Um, you know, it's extremely stressful to even consider doing that. I don't think it would be healthy for me, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, if you ever get asked that chance again, let's, you know, Let's consider it. Let's think about it and talk about it. Uh, and I think the company waited maybe a week before uh, asking her again to please consider going to Tokyo. And her family was still living there. Um, so she, she said, um, yeah, we'd be interested in it. And we decided to move there. Um, the, the thing about Japan that is like... I don't know. It was weird for people there to experience from my perspective is while I had wanted to live abroad um, and I guess just get out of Texas uh, my entire life, there wasn't like a burning desire to go to Japan. There is like, you know, there are people that really are into 
pop culture or the history and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I was just not one of those people. Um, I remember like once I finally got a real job there, uh, speaking with some coworkers and they were asking, you know, so what do you like about Japan? I was like, Oh, you know, it's like, it's nice here. It's safe. The public transit. And they're like, but do you like watch anime? And I was like, no. (laughs) And they were like, Oh, do you read manga? And I was like, no, I, I don't. And they're like, do you like samurais or something? Like, why are you here? <laughs> because a lot of experience, and especially in the uh, English teaching kind of after-school program stuff that I got my visa under, a lot of people are, like, wanting to go to Japan because they really, you know, want to live in the culture and everything. And uh, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of, like, go with the flow. And of course, Miho was there. If I'd gone by myself, it probably would have been impossible. Um, so it was it was nice to like get to experience those things. I think the thing that um, really, I wouldn't say soured us, but the thing that helped spurn us to decide to move back to the U.S. was the working style. Um, work in Japan is a big part of culture, uh, and people work themselves to death all the time you know it's it's like really tough to to um you know for me move up in a company especially i was there are very few companies that are hiring people who can't really speak japanese um surprise surprise and there's you know so i'm in a small company and so it's not like there's like a way to go up really um, and, uh, Miho was in a, a U.S. company that had, you know, an office in Japan. So it also had the characteristics of Japanese work style. Um, that's very, you know, there, there's like hierarchies and there's, um, difficulties in speaking like say negotiations and stuff are really <laughs> complicated because it's a lot of like, y- you have to spend time with the person instead of getting like the concrete details worked out it's more relationship building uh, but it's centered around that japanese work style Uh, and so we decided to move back to the u.s um so that is the only other country that i've lived um when we were living in houston our first trip to japan uh, i recommend people do this if you have the energy like if you're traveling with kids probably not but if it's just you or you and like a friend or spouse or something uh, highly recommended to take long layovers in other countries so the first time we visited uh, tokyo t- to you know uh, visit her family we had long layovers in it was like 20 something hours in frankfurt and then helsinki finland um so we got to you know get out and uh, see everything i think we traveled let's see it might have been like around Thanksgiving time, but uh, in Europe, that's when they start having like Christmas markets and stuff. Um, so highly recommend doing that if you're going through Europe. Um, and you could even time it with festivals in other countries. But that's kind of all of my traveling experience. When we lived in, in Japan, uh, I did not take any trips outside of Japan. Um, my wife had a couple business trips to different places. Uh, and she's actually traveled quite a bit. 
but yeah. So um, let's see. There's there's also easy traveling within within the country of Japan. Uh, but if you're going to travel there, one email me because I have a long list of recommended places in Tokyo and helpful hints. Um, and two, uh, I recommend. A lot of people are like, it's so easy to take trains around. Um, so I'm going to see everything I can see. And, and that includes multiple cities. Uh, I don't think people should do that. I think you should just stick with one city like Tokyo or Osaka. Um, Tokyo is very friendly uh, for you know non-Japanese speakers. Um, very easy to use. It can feel, I think... I've never been to New York, but I think it's kind of like New York, like it can be a big city, but if it's your first time visiting, uh, it's easy and highly recommended and there's stuff to do. It won't feel like it's just a regular city. Osaka has, it's on the, I guess, Western kind of side of Japan. It has more, um, it feels like an Asian city, I guess, like there's more people from uh, the continent of Asia that have lived there and kind of built you know restaurants and stuff like that so it's got more of like a that sort of lively feel to it as opposed to like a a kind of big city um feel of tokyo but both are recommended um but i recommend staying in one place not traveling tokyo for two days osaka for two days um kyoto for one day and then you know where else would people go yokohama or okinawa or something like that those are those trips people usually say like i wish i had spent more time in the first place um so thank you for those questions flappa mama jamma i uh, really appreciate it so moving on um some very serious questions from ryan low uh is tori the plural of taurus um so i actually did some extensive research into this again this was an early question uh Tori is a plural of Taurus, um, but apparently it is only with one eye, not two eyes. Uh, but you could also say Taurus is. And the, the etymology of the word from the Latin uh, means a round, swelling, elevation, protuberance. Uh, but the interesting thing from the the... Latin word is it comes from Proto-Indo-European, uh, which means star, or the word is star. It's like a perfective. It comes at the beginning of a word, uh, and that means to spread, extend, or stretch out. Um, uh, and interestingly, uh, from that, the Proto-Slavic word for storna, or the word is storna, means side or land. Um, so it's as in like a, a spreading out or a bulge in the land. Um, you, the thing that I find interesting with language is that you can, if you start saying words a lot, you can start to see how they evolve into the later versions of them. Um, one thing that my, my Greek professor would have us do, uh, whenever we were learning like a new word that had a new, like, uh, conjugation or different declension stuff than actual like the rules sort of specified because um, that's the thing when they're coming up with languages they don't start with a set of rules and then come up with words the rules are kind of retrofit uh, 
but he would have us pretend that we were um, fighting barbarians and building pots and saying the word over and over again until our tongue got so tired that we started to pronounce it the way that it's actually, you know, uh, modernly pronounced. Um, so you can kind of do that with stir um, to get to Taurus a little bit. Uh, but then the thing with barbarians, um, I was wondering, like, where did the word barbarian originate? Because I know uh, the word barber uh, comes from Latin and it means beard, um, if I recall correctly. But the word barbarian originated in ancient Greece, um, and it doesn't mean <laughs> it. It doesn't mean uh, beard. Um, it was initially used to describe all non-Greek-speaking people, and that's key to the word. Uh, but that includes like Persians, Egyptians, uh, Medes, Phoenicians, and the Greek word barbaros. Um, when it's derived, it means babbler, as in somebody who just like makes unintelligible sounds to the Greek ear. So whatever the language is, it just to them sounded like bar, bar, bar. <laughs> so that's where the word um, barbarian comes from. And the, the Indo-European languages uh, that exist, there's uh, the Sanskrit word for barbara, which means stammering. So here's looking at you, Barbara Bush. Um, in ancient Rome, um, they, they were originally the barbarians to Greeks, uh, but then as the Romans do, adopted it and said, no, we're actually the good guys too, and used the word barbarian for anyone that didn't have Greek and Roman traditions. Um, and Rome is kind of interesting because it's, you know, when it was sacked by the Vandals, um, they just essentially uh, moved into Roman structures and started living like the Romans did. So it's kind of <clears throat> kind of weird um, when you look at Latin and Greek and that time period and stuff. Um, your next question, do, uh, Tauruses exist in wild packs in nature? Um, so a Taurus is the rotation of a circle around a line. Uh, so it's hollow. And if you took the cross section, um, uh, like you can, you can see that it's hollow and there's different types of Tauruses. Uh, if it if the cross section looks like a Venn diagram, then it's actually called a spindle torus, um, where you almost have like a a negative like hollow space in between, um, like a like a double inside kind of. I don't know. If the cross section is the two circles just touching at one point, uh, then it's called a horn torus, and that's kind of like you might see it if you look up like a torical model of the universe. It's it kind of looks like that. Um, which is, that's called foreshadowing people. Uh, and then if they don't touch, it's called a ring torus or an anchor ring. Um, and they do exist in, in the real world. Uh, things like swim rings or inner tubes or ringlet rings are actual toruses. Uh, so they do exist. I wouldn't say in wild packs unless you're going to Walmart in the summer, but they do certainly, you can find them. Um, eyeglass lenses that are also uh, combining spherical and cylindrical correction are, are toric lenses. A little fun fact. Now, the torus is not meant to be confused with a solid torus, 
um, the torus that we're using in the title. Um, a solid torus is formed by a disc, so a, a filled-in disc rotating around a line, so it's solid on the inside, and that would be your, you know, non-inflatable life buoys, uh, bagels, donuts, things like that. Uh, so the reason for it being our uh, podcast name, one, um, Josh came up with it, um, as he does with everything on the show. Um, we were bouncing around ideas. Um, one idea I had uh, was We Them Science Boys, um, and that would have been a horrible name for a podcast. Um, the thing that really helps writing the Taurus stick, I think, was um, I had recalled some advice that I believe Will Miniker had given about their name, Chapo Trap House, that you don't want anything that you think too seriously about. Uh, and I believe Jake even mentioned this like this past week too. Um, and that's really good <laughs> advice because it's, if you think too hard about it, then it's going to sound stupid like Pod Save America. Um, so luckily we have Josh who came up with this name, but he has a deeper understanding of it. Um, and that is because the universe, one proposed shape of the universe is a torus. Um, so reading from my research, um, from an article, sorry, from Live Science, uh, space is sort of, it's one proposed theory. First off, space is flat, right? Um, from every conceivable observation that we can make, everywhere we look, space is flat. And that's counterintuitive. Um, believe me, I understand that. Because we're existing in three-dimensional space. But from every measurement that they can make, it's totally flat. It has, you know, the Euclidean geometry. Um, how you can observe that is if you take just any random three points in the night sky, uh, using something like Hubble even, to get very far-flung spaces or very close or whatever. Whenever you form a triangle with those three spots, the degrees on the inside of the angles uh, need to add up to 180. If it were greater than that, uh, it would not be flat. If it were less than that, it would not be flat. Uh, I forget which is which. I think if it were greater, then it would be like a you're looking at a sphere or something like that. Um, now, consider if you took, uh, if you put three points on Earth that we know is spherical, um, and measured the angles, uh, I believe because the lines are like rounded, uh, the angles are, oh God, I'm going to get this wrong. Let's say smaller. <laughs> so it adds up to less than 180. Um, it might be more. I can't remember. Forgive me, but that would be non-Euclidean geometry. Um, so we know that space is totally flat. Um, from our observations. But there's the chance that at either a very large scale, which we know the universe is big, big, uh, or in a higher dimension or something, um, you know, potentially where like a hologram being cast, um, there is a shape to the universe. And one of the things that 
is proposed is a three-dimensional donut shape, but we know that that's not correct if you're describing a torus because a torus is hollow on the inside. Um, so a three-dimensional torus shape. Uh, probably a horn torus if we're getting specific. Um, and the way that they've come up with this uh, observation is they looked at the um what is it the the cosmic microwave background and the uh differences in temperature at the cosmic microwave background you know if you look it up you can see that there's like this kind of blue to red gradient speckled map almost and that is showing you the degrees of difference of temperature between all of these spots meaning it's not the exact same um temperature it's not all the exact same 2.725 kelvin across uh, there are differences on average by about 100 micro kelvin so that's that's very small um but the thing with these differences that they can determine is that if they were um, caused during the Big Bang uh, and there was this difference in temperature, then the difference between spots that are next to each other would possibly have a pattern. And the pattern of these different temperature differences uh, comes out to about one part in 30,000. Now, that means that there are sections of which there is a scale there is a maximum scale to the difference in temperature between you know two nearby spots which means if there's a scale then the universe has to be closed it can't be an open universe because if it was an open universe uh, then it would have the possibility of an infinite scale you would have one part to 30,000 in one section, you would have one part to 30 billion in another section, and so on. So that means that the universe needs to be closed uh, from this observation. And uh, these laboratories, um, I'm not going to remember what university they're at, but they're able to determine that if the universe uh, is closed, they can do computer simulations of how the universe is expanding. And um, wouldn't you love to say it? It's a torus shape. <laughs> the, the actual expansion of the universe looks like a torus uh, in a way that accounts, you know, nearly exactly to what we actually observe in the cosmic microwave background for these temperature differentiations. So uh, that is to say, um, that yes, uh, tori do exist in wild packs and nature. In fact, it is all of everything. So uh, the Taurus is the existence, I guess you could say. Um, then how long does it uh, generally take to tame a Taurus for it to be rideable? Uh, from our human perspective, our life perspective that we know of, that takes 10.1 billion years. Uh, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And life uh, supposedly formed 3.7 billion years ago uh, on this planet. Um, so from that, we know that it took about 10.1 billion years before we could actually ride a Taurus. Um, 
But of course, um, that is also considering practical terms. If you're talking in theoretical terms, um, just uh, imagining you are a particle, then the recombination epoch that began around 18,000 years ago when electrons started to combine with helium nuclei to form uh, plus one helium, um, you could consider that an era, so about 18,000 years. Perhaps you wanted a little bit more sturdiness, so around 47,000 years ago, the universe began to cool um, and began to dom be dominated by matter instead of radiation. And matter is something that you can actually, you know, uh, physically control, so that could work. Um, 370,000 years ago, neutral hydrogen atoms finished forming, and the results was the you know universe becoming transparent then you could see where you're going so maybe 370,000 years ago it all depends on what your theoretical framework is um and yes they get all of the mileage so they do get good mileage uh next up let's see uh we'll go with marty uh so thank you thank you ryan for those questions uh marty one, you should all check out Marty's music venture, Stop Ghostwood. Uh, he's got a couple of songs on there. Um, it's very cool. They're coming up with, um, what is it, rights, rights, copyright-free music? I don't know. Marty can correct me on that. Um, but it uh, sounds really nice. Um, but his question was, what's the first thing you focus on in a song? The rhythm, drums, vocals, lyrics? Um, so this is going to be probably a question that Josh would be able to explain in a much more eloquent way, him being a musician. Uh, me, on the other hand, I'm a music dummy. Um, I could barely play the recorder as a kid. And I'm trying to think, I think I, I learned uh, that one part of Smoke on the Water uh, on the guitar, and then I could play the beginning to some Beethoven song. Uh, on the tiny string on a guitar. Um, and that's about it. Uh, it. That's after guitar lessons too. Um, so the other complicated thing with my ear is I cannot hear lyrics in a song. Like I, I cannot listen to a song and hear what they're saying for like most music. Um, yeah, I could read along with the lyrics, but it's, I just, I don't know something when I was younger I, I must have when my mom dropped me off the counter onto my head I must have erased that part of my brain that can like listen to a song and enjoy the lyrics that they're singing so uh, I typically listen for the rhythm first um, and despite having no musical ability um, I did use the DJ and uh, that's something that you know, the rhythm plays a major part in, um, of course, drums too for, for matching beats, but I, I use like a MIDI keyboard. So it told me the BPM. So I didn't really have to, you know, I didn't do vinyl or anything, but listening to the rhythm is really important to me. And, um, that part I think maybe comes from, from DJing is I would always try and find a song that had a different sound to it. Um, because I didn't want to be playing the same stuff over and over again. And I, whenever I'm listening to new music or trying to find new electronic music specifically, 
I'll usually skip like a fifth of the way into the song um, and see if it has a unique sound to it. Um, so I don't know what section of song that fits into. I would imagine it's rhythm, but it's usually if there's some sort of unique like synth or beat pattern or, um, you know, the possibly like that's where, you know, more interesting vocals come in sometimes. Um, so that's kind of what I listen to. Um, next, why do trees grow so much slower than other plants? Um, very philosophical. It appears that, uh, I don't know really what this question is going for, <laughs> but I tried to answer it. Um, plants, if you're talking about like flowering plants, um, specifically say, uh, what is it called? Not perennial. I mean, there's biennial and then there's, I guess, annual. I don't know. Um, like flowering plants and stuff go through these spurts where they, they have to grow because the season of pollination happens all at once. Otherwise, the collective success of that plant is not going to occur. So um, that might be why you have sort of a, a perspective that those plants are growing really fast. It's because they are up to a certain point. Um, but compared to trees, you know, I've never seen a rose bush tower over a redwood. So I would say that trees uh, grow quite fast. In fact, um, the way that trees sort of grow, of course, they have to thicken as they grow um, so that they can support the structure and the weight. Um, but there's certain trees that can grow, like the mountain ash can grow seven to 10 feet every year. Um, and I've never once seen a, you know, um, I'm trying to think of like a plant. I've never seen a radish top seven feet. So there's sort of this trade-off between needing to reach a flowering stage or needing to beat all of the other trees in say a forest that you're growing up in. Um, but the thing with the mountain ash is uh, by the time it reaches 90 years of age, its growth has slowed down to about half a meter a year. Um, and then by the time it's 150 years old, it's essentially stopped growing. Maybe it thickens. Uh, but the way that trees grow is they only have sites of active growth, really, uh, besides the rings, at the edges of new branches. Um, that, one, conserves energy because you're not growing you know the whole thing at once uh but two gives them the advantage of discovering new um ideal locations to to grow um but um one of the well the fastest growing plant on earth um the bamboo tree um can grow like one meter in a single day uh at times the weird thing though about bamboos bamboo uh is it's actually not a tree it's a grass it's akin to like wheat oat rice uh grasses like that and the way that it grows is uh the root structures are kind of connected underground like those other grasses um and its cells instead of dividing 
the way that a tree cell does to grow, its cells elongate and stretch out. And through this root structure that's underneath, whenever bamboo shoots up through the ground, um, it essentially just pumps water into those cells to make them stretch. And as they stretch, they continue to build up fibers around to add strength to it. Uh, the reason bamboo does this is it needs to grow and compete uh, against all of the other trees in a forest that it's growing, you know, competing against. Um, and if you ever have seen bamboo grow, uh, you'll know it doesn't really get leaves until it's at a certain height. Uh, and that's because it's not wanting to um, start making its own energy. It needs to focus on that growth aspect. Um, so it's kind of interesting that there's all these different things with plants. Um, I don't know. I always find plants very interesting, um, which kind of leads into the next question of what's a previous episode topic that opened the biggest rabbit hole or uh, I'm still intertwined and in learning about. Uh, and I think it's kind of difficult because I don't typically continue reading stuff after we record. Um, but I think like the, I don't know, Josh is really into space. So I think the space episodes are topics that are totally new to me most of the time. Um, cause I never really had much interest in it, but it is fascinating and learning about the different aspects of, um, universe dynamics or quantum mechanics, uh, things like from the big bang and everything like that it's kind of interesting to then piece those together when you're learning about something like space um so after those i typically pay attention to the news a little bit more on those topics especially like the james webb space telescope um and i'll probably talk about it to uh like family a little bit because it's i don't know i find those things cool but certain topics help give me a different perspective on things and a better appreciation. Um, a couple of those being specifically uh, crows. Uh, the crow episode, now I'm like trying to befriend crows that uh, migrate around here because, again, it's, it's very cool that they can like tell faces apart. Uh, and I listen to their cries to make sure that they're not uh, going to attack me. And they typically don't. Um, another one was, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, I'd previously read the book, um, but it wasn't until speaking through it, uh, with Josh that I was able to get a better understanding of the, the subject matter and a way to approach life. Um, so I think more than getting caught in a rabbit hole and continuing to research on something, I start to try and incorporate it more into my life. Um, and that's one that like early on when I learned about evolution, uh, it certainly gave me a different perspective on things. And from learning that, you know, uh, in depth, I guess, in college, from then on gave me a much more deeper appreciation for uh, life and animals and uh, plants specifically and all those sorts of things. So that's kind of how my brain works with stuff is I start to, I don't know, uh, appreciate things a little bit more. Um, so thank you for those, Marty. And, uh, now on to the man of the hour, Justin Bell. Um, 
famed Oreo commentator, um, wanter of Sour Patch Kids cookies. So his first question, uh, we get a, into very serious subject matter immediately. Uh, what my favorite building at Baylor was or is. Um, I've spoken about um, going to Baylor before, but that's where I went to college. Um, it It is uh, an okay school. Uh, their science was surprisingly good. Um, but if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have gone there. Um, but, you know, um, I was a pretty good kid growing up, so all of my family had gone there, so I didn't really have a thought of going anywhere else. Um, again, that's kind of the um, mentality of people I was around in Texas that I didn't end up enjoying over the long term. But uh, my favorite building at Baylor. So they've built new stuff there. Um, I have not been back. Uh, I went back one time after I graduated. Uh, and that was whenever my in-laws, uh, before we were married, but my in-laws were visiting us in Houston, and we drove up to Dallas to uh, meet some family that I no longer speak with, and they wanted to see the school, so we we took the um, Highway 6 route and went through Waco. So we took them through Waco and uh, just drove through the campus. Um, I think they built a lot of stuff since then, uh, or since I was there, but going off of the buildings that I do recall after looking at a map of my own college, um, I think the science building was nice. It was pretty new when I, when I went there, but, uh, my favorite building has to be, uh, Russell, which, uh, is a, I believe it was a dorm and uh, it's in like a the shape of a square, and there's like a courtyard in the middle cut out, um, and there's two like entryways into that courtyard from the outside, and um, if we were talking hypothetically, somebody were running from uh, security, uh, it was possible to go into that uh, one entrance. Um, they wait for you at the other end, but then you can climb up on the tool shed inside of the uh, courtyard and they can't find you um so that would be my hypothetical uh, favorite building and i will not be expounding on that uh next up he was interested in hearing what my personal sort of ideal political system would be now <clears throat> we talk about politics often on this show um and something that comes up quite often is how everything is politics everything is political um, so it's kind of difficult because I don't want to like, uh, you know, cop out of this question, but personally, I very rarely consider an actual structure or what the head of state would be. Um, I'm not like a political scholar, um, and I never really studied those different political structures. Obviously I understand the difference between like a parliamentary system and uh, the jacked up Senate <laughs> and Congress that we have here. Um, but the actual structure of things is something that I've really not spent any time considering. And to be truthful, I tried to consider it. 
for this question, and I just can't come up with anything that is is novel or would be a structure that I would really care about. Um, but going further into this question, um, if everything is political, um, then I think there should be some sort of structure in which we ideally live without scarcity or need. Um, and by that, I mean, sure, possibly there could be scarcity for certain commodities and things. I'm not saying that everybody needs Air Jordans. Um, but for, uh, say, food or uh, living situations or medicine, there should be no scarcity. Um, and personally, I believe that this should be an international structure. Um, I've mentioned it before, but I don't really think that the competition between countries is uh, moral in any sense, especially when you consider, now I'm maybe cribbing from some people when I say these things, but it's no less true, um, like, you know, countries in Africa are not poor. Uh, countries in South America are not poor. They're extremely rich in resources, but those resources are extracted at the detriment of the people living there. Those people are kept in poverty and have to live with much severe, much more severe scarcity than we encounter um, most of the time in the U.S., uh, but it is uh, nonetheless scarcity. Um, so that's why I believe that there should be some structure that, you know, allows for international solidarity and a limiting of any scarcity of need and necessity. Uh, because again, we're all people. And if we have that competition between nations, then, you know, you eventually drive into things that are um, exploiting other people. Um, you know, for instance, there's like, uh, say the COVID vaccine, there's places that are now needing to just destroy the vaccine because the expiration date has now passed and they can't use it. Uh, but there is no consideration currently of, hey, why don't we send that to another country that needs it? Sure, logistically, it'd be difficult, but there's a global pandemic going on. People are dying all over the place. So whatever the structure is, uh, it needs to limit scarcity be international. And I believe that once you have profit incentives dissolved, um, people could then build a world without suffering. Um, you know, profit is generated by surplus labor. Um, so that's just labor that is in excess of what is needed to produce things. And as we're shifting towards more automation and whatnot, um, you know, it, isn't it sort of interesting that we now have to work um, even harder, right? Like, think of the last time that you actually had a lunch break where you didn't have to talk about work or you had more than 30 minutes where you didn't think about work. Um, isn't it interesting that as we're shifting towards automation, these things are eroding? Uh, that's because we have a profit incentive where we need to be making more profits. We need to be working much more 
to create profits that are not necessary in the overall structure of creating, uh, you know, having production. Um, while we're speaking about production, uh, I also think that there should be a structure of common ownership over all of the production. Um, that would then alleviate the need for so much, um, you know, top-down authority to uh, parse out this material so that there isn't scarcity, right? If we have collective ownership over it, then it's okay that you're selfish, right? Um, most people are in some ways trying to do things to benefit themselves. Uh, so it's okay that you're selfish if there's collective ownership over these things in a way that you then understand by making sure that um, certain services are still provided, you're benefiting from it. You know, this is kind of why I, I uh, draw issue with things like um, constantly just pointing out like uh, Trump is an idiot or uh, Republican voters are, you know, uh, sycophants, all this kind of stuff. Um, when you could just look at Twitter yesterday when Hillary Clinton's masterclass <laughs> dropped um, and she's talking about the way to be resilient is to uh, still cry about losing an election that you could have easily won. Um, so by pointing these things out on the opposite side, instead of criticizing the more people who should be pushing for positive change or claiming that they push for positive change, you're doing a disservice, and I know I play into it myself sometimes, um, but you're not approaching um, a space where people can then understand that there's uh, better things that are possible um, because you're just drawing up borders between yourselves. You're creating more competition and you're creating a, a sports atmosphere um, when there are certain things that are very important that need to get dealt with, like climate change, that are being totally ignored. Um, so with that overarching political structure, I guess it's more kind of a societal structure. Uh, but then again, society is, um, you know, one in the same with politics. Um, political institutions themselves under that framework would then shift from creating the laws that uh, punish or set, um, you know, something in place that you can then be thrown in jail for or whatever to more administrators of the production and administrators of the distribution of things um, and protect against corruption or harm to people. Now, the difficulty with um, an international structure like this is it's very large. Where would it be located? You know, um, it, it wouldn't make um, make it there wouldn't be much justice <laughs> in putting it in a place like, uh, you know, London <laughs> that was the head of an empire, uh, for so many years and essentially kickstarted a lot of, uh, our modern problems. Um, so I understand that there's logistical difficulties to it. Then how do you communicate, uh, between all of these places and make sure that logistics are worked out and everything. I understand it's difficult, but, uh, you, you asked me my ideal structure. So, um, 
it's kind of difficult um to really nail down again on like the literal not framework again structure i keep using that word of how this would work um obviously you've had other attempts at things like this uh like with the soviet union um having like communication between all of these different places to a central sort of planning uh administrator um the word soviet literally is just kind of like it meant like a you know regional kind of governing body that would then take advice from people and then pass it on so that's why it's the union of soviets um so that didn't work great there's a lot of corruption um our current system doesn't really work great where we you know tell me the last time that you got an actual email from your representative uh addressing everything that you spoke about and saying how they're going to change it you know you're one voice and plenty millions so this is difficult to do but i believe that there's uh a better world that's possible with this sort of elimination of scarcity uh international cooperation and a strong need to um work together to build better things uh then finally a uh <clears throat> a quick one on my home cooking routine um so personally uh i grew up in a house that never cooked um like the most that they would cook would be like spaghetti and that would be uh burning some beef in a pan and then dumping some ragu sauce on it and getting some soggy noodles uh and calling that spaghetti maybe they would add a jar of mushrooms to it um but there was no like uh heat <laughs> really used to like make things beyond just scorching some meat um that was until my stepdad came along and uh showed us his favorite home cooked meal which was to quarter hot dogs long ways and soak them in boiling spaghetti sauce and then put them on a slab of white bread with mayonnaise um so that is the world that i came from most of my meals were like tv dinners and stuff uh, and it wasn't until college that i started trying to cook and uh, despite going to baylor despite having two lawyer parents and then whatever my stepmom did i think it was cpa at the time and then my uh, stepdad being uh essentially the head of like an organization um they kept me under very tight monetary control and on top of rent at the end of the month i had about uh, and i'm not joking here um 50 bucks for food for a month and uh I was not allowed to get a job during college. Uh, so um, it was pretty difficult for me to figure out how to cook on that budget. Uh, there was a lot of fried rice with just onions and salt and pepper. Um, a lot of ramen uh, that I would then, you know, sometimes put cheese in. Um, but I didn't quite understand how to like cook things, you know? Um, that was until, uh, Miho came along and, uh, she would often come visit me at my apartment in Waco. 
and she knows how to cook uh, and actually showed me that there's more than just off and high heat on the stove. Uh, there's this middle ground that they call medium uh, and even mid-low. So you can warm things up. And she taught me how to like reheat fried rice properly and not, you know, get rice stuck all to the pan, all this kind of stuff. And from then, <clears throat> I really started enjoying cooking because it's a time that you can like focus on that and not really like you can let your mind wander a little bit, but you got to kind of just be kind of in the moment. Um, and personally, I don't like things like yoga or meditation because I can't ever be in the moment of something. My brain's always going on with stuff. Um, but cooking is one of those times that I think maybe because it's your, it's sort of creation. Uh, so it has kind of an artistic, um, or it appeals to my artistic sensibilities that you can come up with something. And, uh, so yeah, so I, I really enjoy cooking and I cook, um, a lot of our meals at home. Um, maybe, maybe most meals, um, Miho works and she, as I've previously mentioned, I don't really have a job. She does. So, uh, obviously I'm going to divvy up responsibilities for things. Um, but the cooking routine is kind of weird because I, so I didn't have like a routine as a kid, didn't understand how to like pre-plan maybe a week or whatever. Um, <clears throat> living in Houston, uh, I would get out at weird hours from the lab and then Miho was also, uh, getting her master's while she was working. So like we had weird hours and cooking wasn't really a thing. Um, they had like really held a central place at that time. But once we moved to Japan, uh, cooking became a much bigger part of like how I contributed. And the thing with Japan that was great, uh, it was difficult because we had a very small fridge, but it was great because I could pass by a grocery store every day on the way home. So it was typically the end of the day was uh, texting Miho to see what she wanted to eat and if she had anything in mind. Um, then on my way home, uh, we took, you know, different routes to get home, worked in different places. Um, I would pass by the grocery store and just pick up whatever we needed for that day's meal. And that was kind of how it transitioned into like, um, once we were living in LA and it's not, uh, you know, a great way to do it, but it's kind of like, you know, shopping every day or every other day for the food and you can do it, you know, as long as you're getting just what you need, you're not spending, uh, too much and you can reuse, you know, onions or whatever. But once COVID hit, um, that forced me to actually plan out meals and, um, that was pretty difficult. Um, because personally for lunch every day, I could eat either Greek yogurt with berries and granola or a Caesar chicken salad or chicken Caesar salad. Um, and you can't have like, you know, berries or romaine lettuce lasting for an entire week most of the time, um, and still be tasty at the end of the week. So that was pretty difficult to start transitioning to and working in things like, um, you know, curry or whatever kind of stuff that can last a while. Um, but now I kind of have like a hybrid system. Uh, but for dinners, like our go-to meals, 
Um, despite uh, TC's racist joke on last year's Bonin Kai episode, um, we don't just constantly eat rice uh, in our house. Um, but we do have a lot of Japanese food. There's uh, Japanese food that exists that isn't uh, rice based, believe it or not. Um, but it's the thing with Japanese food, too, that's great is one, it's pretty healthy. Uh, two, you can make like it's very easy to make that day's worth or multiple days worth. You know, if you're doing like a soup, you can make it in one day. If you're doing again curry, that can last quite a while or uh, whatever. But we also live really close to Japanese grocery stores. Um, and being on the coast, that means we can get sushi grade fish um, at the grocery store and just have like sushi at home for like a fifth of the price that you would pay at a store. So while soups and Japanese food and sushi and stuff are like really quick ones, um, I guess our only go-to meal, which isn't really a meal at all, is kind of like a, a finger food night where we go to like Whole Foods and get, you know, a filet mignon or cheese, bread, wine, something like that, and just kind of have like an old school quick, you know, prosciutto and whatever meal. So it's not super exciting. It's not really cooking, but, um, you know, that's kind of like the routine. Um, I don't know how other people really do it. I think like some people pre-plan stuff, um, like, and put it in the freezer and that's insane (laughs) to me. I don't understand, uh, how you work the courage up to defrost something and eat it, but, um, Godspeed. So that's, um, that's it. That's pretty much everything. Uh, I don't know if I'm even going to post the notes to this. Do have seven pages worth, but maybe I implicate myself in a crime, uh, in one or two of them. So may not post that, but, uh, hope you enjoyed it and, um, wish Josh some luck on a speedy recovery. Uh, we should be back next week and wrapping up the year pretty soon. Uh, I think we're going to do another Bone and Kai too. Um, don't know if TC and Jake uh, or anyone else would be joining us, but we'll try and be wrapping up something kind of fun for um, maybe, I don't know, let me look at a calendar. Maybe something for you to listen to wrapping presents. Yeah, look at that. We're going to have an episode come out on Christmas Eve. Perfect. That way you can be sipping on something and uh and uh waiting for santa claus so thanks for listening uh hope it wasn't too difficult if you made it this far let me know always feel free to send us questions um sometimes if you send us questions it might turn into like a whole episode uh so you know we certainly enjoy hearing from people um i really appreciate everybody paying attention to my relentless twitter assault and uh, answering, or I guess sending in questions, um, feel free to also like tell us a different theory on, uh, different things. If you have one that you enjoy that we didn't touch on or whatever, we're always willing to like go back and, um, look at something new and recap stuff or whatever. So, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, hope you have a good one. Uh, bye.